Welcome to this episode of One Book at a Time, the Manchester University Press podcast. Time to slow down, consider the issues, learn the histories and exercise your brain in the open air of considered judgment and frontline thinking. And help us change the world one book at a time. In this edition of One Book at a Time, we want listeners to ponder a question they may never have thought about before. How much would you pay for a whale? Or more sensibly, how much would you contribute personally to protect a whale? So according to the International Monetary Fund, a whale is worth about 2 million US dollars per whale, which works out to about a trillion for the global stock. And I think they calculated that all of it works out to about $13 per person in terms of how you know we should contribute to paying to conserve, conserve whale species. Did you guess right? Or like author Adrian Buller, did you question what motivated the International Monetary Fund to put a price tag on a whale in the first place. The justification for the paper was that we aren't, you know, investing in preserving whale species and broadly we should make the case for their conservation, not around their kind of right to exist or their value as intrinsic kind of living complex beings, but rather how they contribute to the global economy. And they figured that was that was the best way to understand the problem and the best way to resolve it. That was the IMF's justification for its research. But Adrienne Bullet examines the value of a whale from a different angle, that of the self-defeating logic of green capitalism and green growth, of the increasing commodification of nature and the growing influence of the finance industry on environmental policy. She looks at the biases that have shaped the responses of our governing institutions to climate and environmental breakdown and asks, are the solutions being proposed really solutions? Her book is called, of course, The Value of a Whale. That's what motivated the title of the book and, and why I start and end with that question, which is, you know, this idea of attaching a price tag to things we value as the only way to understand and engage with their value. I think that perfectly kind of captures and distills the way that capitalism is currently struggling to engage with and resolve questions around ecological crisis. I'm Kim Walker from Manchester University Press. I began my interview with Adrienne by asking more about the significance of the IMF paper that inspired her book. In this paper, they were trying to make the case for whale conservation based on the idea that whales contribute to carbon sequestration and that they contribute to ecotourism, so whale watching tours, basically. And really feeling like that approach where they arrive at approximately $2 million per whale as the value, feeling like that was in many ways a kind of perfect distillation of the really kind of absurd and very intuitively strange way that the systems and institutions of capitalism are engaging with climate and ecological crisis and the way they understand the value of the natural world in which we're embedded. I think to many of us, it's very clear that you know a whale is worth 
many things that probably can't be associated with dollar price tag, whether that's kind of their intrinsic value from existing, whether that's their sort of spiritual or cultural worth and, and various other things we might think about that really aren't captured by attempts to assign a dollar value based on how they contribute to, to the economy. And so that really is the overriding theme of the book is trying to unpick how markets engage with the natural world and with climate and ecological crisis. The book actually opens with quite a personal story of yours going whale watching or you were on holiday when you were young and, and you saw this kind of very sort of majestic whale. And it really made me think there is something strange about putting a dollar price on a whale and indeed referring to the global population as stock. There's something very uncomfortable and peculiar around that. But is putting a price tag on a whale or the natural world ever a good thing? I kind of grapple with this question in the book quite a bit because one of the goals of the book is to basically try and appraise like the mechanisms and, and proposals of sort of the green capitalist framework. So I do try to like crawl inside the head of, of green capitalists a little bit to try and understand what are the kind of rationales for doing this. And I have a lot of sympathy for the, the kind of primary underlying argument of attaching these price tags to things, whether that's through the kind of creation of natural capital assessments or sort of ecosystem services, this idea that because we don't currently appropriately value in economic terms the natural world around us, we don't kind of place costs on actors that might cause environmental degradation, that might drive biodiversity loss. Basically, people can get away with environmental harms relatively freely if you are sort of a corporation acting in the global economy. And so the kind of justification for why you might do this sounds very intuitively fair and very reasonable, right? We need to find a way to reflect the value of these within our economic operations so that we can go about trying to reduce you know, harm and damage to, to the environment and the natural world. So I think that makes a lot of sense to many people, and it's partly why, you know, even kind of progressive economists have often come to the idea of natural capital accounting as something that is, is kind of a necessary evil, is maybe a bit strong, but kind of necessary if imperfect. The big problem that it really quickly runs into is that there's really no sound way to arrive at these valuations that comes anything close to representing what they're actually worth, but also from a purely kind of material ecological perspective, actually trying to conserve them. So, you know, if you try and abstract a single species like a whale out from the very complex and, and highly developed ecosystems in which they're embedded, you can end up with incredibly kind of poor ecological outcomes. And, and this has been happening a lot where people have sort of tried to implement these methods as a way to understand, you know, the trade-offs between sort of economic activity and, and environmental harm. And so that's one of the big issues, I guess, that the book tries to raise is thinking about, you know, what is this actually doing, even if it sounds kind of intuitively logical or reasonable. You're talking about green capitalism and you're talking about the natural world. You're talking about climate crisis. So how would we start to redefine the value of nature or individual animals or such as a whale? You know, one of the big problems that the book raises is that even for those of us who feel like this is maybe a problem, it's really, really hard to sort of break your imagination out of the constraints of trying to justify and understand everything through kind of market mechanisms and through prices and justify things in terms of how they might be of value to the economy. 
typically understood in the very narrow sense of kind of GDP growth and production. I'll use an example of just how poorly we, we do it right now. So the Biden administration has recently published its plans to create sort of a natural capital accounting measure for part of its national accounts. And a lot of that is based off of kind of best practice valuation methods. And some of these include understanding what a certain ecosystem or type of land cover is worth based on the difference in property values between houses located in different locations or how much people might be willing to travel to visit a site of kind of natural beauty. What is the value of productive resources like forestry in that region, etc. And what you end up with is these incredible tables of the value of different ecosystems. So you've got beaches and dunes worth, you know, several orders of magnitude more than a wetland or a coral reef, according to these methods, obviously because people like to go on beach holidays and beach houses are considered highly valuable in the property market. From an ecological perspective, obviously that's that's meaningless and, and would drive incredibly harmful outcomes. And so I think, you know, step one is to really just step back and reevaluate how we are approaching these questions from the first instance, which is broadly, here is the sort of set of economic frameworks and constraints within which we operate, you know, market-based mechanisms, needing everything to be justified in terms of GDP and then coming to sort of ecological solutions from there, I think the opposite needs to be happening, which is starting from first principles, you know, what is it that we're setting out to achieve? Broadly, that might be a thriving, stable biosphere and natural world where more people have access to nature and there are fewer kind of inequalities in terms of the relationship between poverty and your lack of access to nature and green spaces, and then work backwards to the kind of economic mechanisms for how we get there. Because in my view, the kind of outcomes are much more important than economic framework that we're adhering to. So I think people should really feed into these kinds of mechanisms say, you know, hey, there are other forms of value beyond just, you know, how a wetland contributes to, to American GDP, for example. You maintain such a hopeful tone in the book sometimes what can feel like an overwhelming task to try and unpick some of the processes that happen that are leading towards the current climate crisis. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, I suppose, what, what exactly do you mean by green capitalism? And I suppose, how is it defined? And why is it an illusion? In the book, I kind of use a working definition that is probably quite imperfect of what I consider green capitalism to be. I define it according to two sort of core principles that I think a lot of mainstream policy approaches to climate and ecological crisis, whether it's natural capital, like we've just spoken about, whether it's kind of carbon markets like cap and trade, or whether it's, you know, the sustainable finance industry, which is a big, a big focus in the book. All of these kinds of positions and approaches to resolving climate crisis based on the mechanisms of the market are under the banner of what I call green capitalism. And they tend to fall into two, one or both of two kind of key approaches, one of which is recognizing in climate and ecological crisis a, a genuinely unprecedented threat to capitalism as a system for organizing the economy and societies. The ability for the capitalist system to reproduce itself is increasingly under threat as we push up against kind of the boundaries of what the, the kind of planet can sustain. And so there is a genuine response to that. And instead of what used to be, I think, overt climate denialism and kind of obstruction of climate policy, 
Instead, you know, we have a response from the sites of capital, whether that's corporations or financial institutions, that shows them really wanting to now instead kind of control the path we take to decarbonization. And in that path, make sure that we are kind of doing as much as possible to minimize disruption to the current economic model, to current economic institutions, frameworks, and, and understandings. So instead of thinking about how we could transform the way that we get around in terms of decommodified mobility, for example, and mass transit, it's really about how can we decarbonize every aspect of our transport system as it currently stands, because broadly that's working pretty well for sort of profit-making industries. So that's one kind of approach. And the second is ensuring that in the transition to a sustainable economy, that we ensure that there are new avenues for profit for the private sector, for private investment, and that everything that we do is with an eye towards how the, the kind of private sector can benefit from this transition and ensure that they continue to accumulate in the way that they currently are. And there are lots of ways that that kind of transpires. Some of them might be policy approaches that are focused on crowding in private investors to build new green infrastructure rather than using the public sector to do that kind of directly. And so that's the kind of second pillar of the two green capitalist approaches or solutions. So would it be oversimplistic to say that some of the solutions that are being put forward are, are kind of merely paying lip service to actually kind of trying to create kind of effective change? It seems like those putting forward or making promises and offering solutions or advocating for these sort of green capitalist solutions, like why are they growing more and more popular if they're if they're not really achieving their goals? Yeah, this is a sort of issue that is now quite a hot button term, this idea of greenwash, right, which is kind of bad faith engagement with climate ecological crisis from corporations and financial institutions paying lip service to the idea that like, oh, we're green and great now and, you know, not really doing anything in the process. That's definitely a problem, but I think there is a much kind of deeper and trickier to kind of overcome problem beneath that, which is that I think there are is much more kind of good faith action than there is bad faith. It's just that it's applied in kind of mechanisms and frameworks that, you know, are all based around the market and the price signal as the only kind of way that we can resolve climate ecological crisis. And that that is kind of fundamentally a system that is ill-equipped to deal with kind of complexity of planning required, the kind of scale and the pace of what we're facing. And that is a much more fundamental problem. So for me, you know, there's a lot of, genuine effort from policymakers or from businesses to engage in more sustainable finance or to do carbon pricing and all of these things. The trouble is that those solutions are, are ill-equipped for the challenge at hand, and that's why we're seeing so little progress. So at best, you know, I tend to describe these things as distractions for which we very much don't have time and where a lot of energy and resources and time is being directed towards solutions that will never kind of deliver on their on their promise. But at worst, it is also in the process doing something that the IPCC now calls maladaptation, which is, you know, creating additional harms or even setting us further off track in the process. And those to me are even more troubling than greenwash because you can sort of root out greenwash and find bad faith actors and punish them for that behavior. But when the kind of mainstream mindset is centered around policy approaches and solutions that, in my view, are kind of doomed to fail by design, that's a much trickier problem to kind of overcome. That's really apparent in your book that 
a lot of these policies are you know, at worst perpetuating the kind of destructive forces that have led us to where we are. And on the other hand, approving sort of monumental distractions for perhaps imagining an alternative. And I wondered if you could talk, talk a little bit more about that. So for example, I suppose ESGs, you can argue it's a good thing and that it encourages companies to invest more ethically, but also it seems to be kind of a big distraction in yeah, reimagining alternative solutions. Yeah, so ESG, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, is kind of an acronym for Environmental Sustainable Governance Investing, which is yeah, a form of kind of investing in the private sector that is meant to take those kinds of criteria and issues in mind. So you would stop investing in, in firms with bad environmental records or bad kind of labor rights, track records, etc. All these kinds of questions that are, are meant to make investing more sustainable and ethical, um, as you point out there, Kim. And it's been incredibly successful and popular over recent years as an industry. There's been this like phenomenal boom in ESG assets and funds that are are invested in that way. And it's given way to a lot of triumphant kind of editorials and, and newspaper articles around this idea that at long last we found a way to align the kind of imperative of financial returns with also doing something good for the planet. So this idea that like you can do well by doing good. It sounds great when you see all these headline figures that X trillion dollars are now invested sustainably and your pension fund you know, is offering you a sustainable option in how you invest. All of that is very positive sounding and I think incredibly dangerous as a distraction from the fact that we have completely failed thus far to shift financing away from new fossil fuel expansion and production and exploration in any kind of way that is meaningful from the perspective of just how quickly we need to, to transform our economies off of fossil fuels. And a lot of that comes down to the kind of mechanisms of, of ESG itself. So ESG is fundamentally because it is within this market framework and it's about ensuring financial returns, first and foremost, it takes a perspective that is based on financial risk rather than material risks. And what I mean by that is ESG asks the question, what would climate legislation or environmental damage or a human rights scandal do to the returns for your portfolio? Not how is your investment contributing to driving the climate crisis or to sort of labor exploitation? It sounds very similar, but they're two fundamentally different things. And so you can end up with examples like some of the biggest ESG funds in the US tend to overwhelmingly just be filled with financial firms and big pharma and big tech. And they may sort of drop one or two fossil fuel majors, but because they are focused on a financial risk-based perspective, they have very little interest in investing in an alternative green future. They're just trying to minimize their exposure to certain risks that they deem financially relevant. And my favorite study that I cite in the book about this is a study that looks at a set of funds rather based on the Russell 2000. That is basically in, in very simple terms, like a list of 2000 mid-sized corporations. And a fund will basically say, I'm gonna buy up all these corporations and just track their kind of returns. There's a study between normal funds that follow that index and then the same kind of set of funds but they're kind of ESG counterparts where they may have removed some of the, the bad companies, for example. And what they end up with as, you know, the single biggest difference between the mainstream and the ESG funds based on these indexes is that the ESG funds selected for companies with few or no employees, which is completely coherent 
from the perspective of financial firms, right? Because if you have no laborers, then you can't have labor disputes and, and human rights violations. Obviously, you're not doing very much to like improve the conditions of workers around the world. <laughs> and that, I think, is, is the key to kind of ESG and a lot of sustainable investing. And that very much applies to the kind of climate domain as well. So, yeah, I think there is a real risk around kind of just how easy it is to take kind of comfort in these big figures when very little is actually happening kind of under the hood. I mean, that that kind of example that you gave, I just found quite shocking and, and slightly depressing, really. You talk about the work of William Nordhaus, and I just kind of wondered, is that kind of part of the root of the problem? How is it that, as it's phrased, an economist's thought experiment appears to have shaped climate policy for almost 40 years? Is that a major problem that that's still used as a framework? Or perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. So, yeah, so William Nordhaus, very famous kind of, uh, probably the most famous kind of climate economist who's been operating in the field for, for more than virtually anyone else. And he's hugely influential on politics and policymaking around how the climate crisis will affect the economy and therefore you know, how we should think about responding to the climate crisis, how ambitious we should be, etc. And he, he received the kind of Nobel adjacent prize in economics for this now very widely used model called DICE, which stands for Dynamic Integrated Climate Economy Model. And basically what it does is tries to estimate amassing, you know, loads of other resources and studies and models. It tries to estimate the relationship between changing climate and global GDP, effectively. And from this, you know, the DICE model arrives at an economically optimal future that is warmed by, you know, three and a half or four degrees Celsius. And that's meant to be optimal from the perspective of cost-benefit trade-offs between a deteriorating climate and hits to GDP from mitigation. Obviously, science tells us that three and a half or four degrees is catastrophic. Kevin Anderson, who's a really brilliant climate scientist, uses a phrase I think is very powerful, which is, it's likely incompatible with globally organized society <laughs> because the effects would be so profound and, and catastrophic. And yeah, I think that really gets to the heart of just how ill-equipped kind of mainstream economics is for grappling with a challenge as complex and as vast as climate and ecological crisis. And yet, despite that, Nordhaus and many of his peers single him out because he is the most salient figure, but there, there's a whole industry of economists that are wheeled out to do these analyses. They have hugely impacted how governments and even bodies like the IPCC, which basically synthesize all the best available knowledge that we have and kind of synthesize all studies that relate to these topics. It's hugely impacted their findings because the vast majority of economists that get cited and published in journals and which are picked up in those processes tend to follow these kind of same sets of assumptions and frameworks around how the economy works, how the environment will interact with and impact it, many of which are based on, yeah, very kind of nakedly questionable assumptions, which also rely on a, a good degree of subjectivity around the person creating the model and the analysis and the, the assumptions they choose. And despite that, economics as a field, and this has been quite deliberate by economics as a profession, it tends to get treated as though it is a hard science in the same way that climate science is, and it gives this really, really strong kind of veneer of authority 
that lends itself to policymaking that has tended to really downplay how severe the challenge with the climate crisis is and how quickly and robustly we need to act. And that's, yeah, that's been a huge problem over the years. You know, Nordhaus, as you pointed out in your question there, where there's this kind of very large kind of folk narrative around his influence in creating the two degree target that is enshrined in the Paris Agreement. You know, he's had influence on that as opposed to that being purely based off of what science deems to be kind of a safe I can use that word kind of threshold. That's been a huge problem, both in terms of setting the scale of our ambition, but also understanding what is important as a trade-off in in confronting climate crisis. And overwhelmingly, that's been cast as a trade-off between GDP growth, which is somehow meant to represent economic prosperity, even though it often does very little for most people, a trade-off between that and kind of a habitable planet. And that's been, I think, a huge hurdle in setting the kind of appropriate ambition of of policymakers all over the world. Is there a possibility to kind of shift that thinking maybe towards an alternative vision or a longer term vision that can take place that that has a positive impact on the climate that's not centred around this kind of myopic economism and, and market centric thinking towards the environment? Yeah, I think one of the first tasks we have ahead of us, and that's partly what this book sets out to do a little bit, is to just overcome that idea that economics is this kind of unassailable science and that it is based on kind of raw objectivity and accurately captures the world around us. And, you know, economists love to do all sorts of fancy models that, you know, over and over and over tend to be wrong about, you know, predicting the future that we'll live in. It's fundamentally a social science based on human interactions and the way that we organize our societies and ourselves. And I think breaking through that kind of impression that it has and that authority that it has in the policymaking space is an incredibly important task. I think there are lots of people that are beginning to do that. And there are lots of heterodox economics perspectives and economists and intellectuals and academics who are out there championing those ideas. And there's also a lot of kind of community and organizing based work that is trying to break with the conventions that mainstream economics sets. So Kate Rayworth, for example, who sets out one kind of alternative vision for how we should understand the the economy around this idea of like a donut, making sure you provide everything that people need without kind of crossing planetary boundaries. I think for a lot of people, that sounds like so intuitive that it's almost obvious. And yet somehow that was a hugely controversial idea in economics. But a lot of communities have really begun to pick up that model and use it to, to govern how they organize their economies, their kind of local economies. And so there are lots of kind of alternative models on the rise all over. And so there's lots to look to that I guess is hopeful, but the real challenge is, yeah, is I guess contesting the idea that like the economics profession is this fundamental arbiter of truth and of things that, you know, we normal people couldn't possibly understand. Absolutely. I I completely agree. And, you know, while we're talking about the problems of green capitalism and that whole approach and the problems of placing a a market value on something. What happens if there isn't a market value on something? Does that go uncared for, unnoticed, you know, in the context of sort of ecological destruction or loss of biodiversity? This is the whole, you know, justification. And again, I think there's a lot to it and I have a lot of sympathy for this idea that is at the heart of market-based approaches, which is that precisely because we don't currently apply a market value to 
to ecosystems or to different species or indeed to carbon emissions. You know, we don't apply a cost to those um, in most cases, although lots of places do have some kind of carbon pricing in place now. But the idea is that because we don't put a, a value or a cost on those things, we don't appropriately engage with them and we end up with what's called like an externality, which is basically a negative impact that is outside of the market because it doesn't have a cost attached to it. And carbon emissions are one of those, environmental degradation is another. And so the entire logic is that by putting a price that is appropriate on these things, we can internalize that externality to the market. And through applying a price, the market will be able to understand that this is something that has now a material cost to them, and they'll sort of begin to stop doing the bad things, whether that's emitting carbon or whether that's, you know, engaging in environmental degradation. The trouble is that even where there are examples where that has happened, the kind of outcomes have not been very good, to say the least. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that, you know, the price mechanism is just incompatible as a a driving force with the kinds of targets we need to achieve, whether that's like really rapidly eliminating fossil fuels from their incredibly embedded position in our global infrastructure, or whether that's, you know, preserving highly complex and kind of mature ecosystems. Because what you end up with when you take sort of a dollar value based approach to these things is you can end up with hugely unrepresentative and kind of irrational understandings of the value of different ecosystems. But also you end up doing things that involve kind of trading different ecosystems for each other. So you might have biodiversity offsetting, which basically enables a developer to say, oh, you know, I need to mow down this forest here in order to build X building that I want to create. And to offset that, I'll plant a thousand trees of equivalent value in economic terms to what I've just destroyed to offset that. And from an economic perspective, that might make sense. From an ecological one, they tend to be catastrophic, which probably comes as a shock to no one. And the same goes for carbon pricing, right? We've had several carbon pricing schemes in various forms around the world, whether that's taxes or cap and trade for quite a while. And overall emissions under carbon pricing schemes have come down by like, I think it's 0.5% and 2% per year on average, according to review of existing schemes and their impacts. And again, that's because you can try to apply a price to carbon emissions. The ability to represent the actual harm created by carbon to the global economy and to the atmosphere would make that carbon price so high that no one could function because we exist in societies where fossil fuels are embedded. And also often those alternatives don't exist. So. You can make things more expensive, but many people don't simply have the ability to just choose a green or decarbonized alternative. Often they don't exist, they're unavailable, etc. And so they're just kind of inappropriate mechanisms. So all of that to say, I think, while I have a lot of sympathy for the intuitive idea that we need to value these things, often when we do so in a purely kind of economistic sense, it, it has really bad outcomes because it's kind of a mechanism that is ill-suited for what we're facing. So I wanted to ask you about the writing process of this book and you as an author. You wrote this book while you were in California during 2021. There was a summer of kind of record temperatures again, blazing wildfires. That summer record temperatures have been recorded in Siberia. So how do you maintain that hopeful tone as an author? And as you were writing, did you feel a sense of urgency that you needed to get this book out in a particular moment? 
definitely, I think, yes to both. The thing about the climate crisis is there's always a sense of urgency. We can't escape it, uh, no matter when that book could come out. I think the interesting thing about the preface that you're citing there, where I was, yeah, visiting family in California and spending time surrounded by choking smoke from wildfires, it did kind of remind me, not necessarily of hope or optimism per se, but more, it's just a really stark reminder of just how bad things are and could become and this kind of like lit a fire in my belly um, around the kind of urgency of making some kind of contribution and around the fact that all over the world many people are already facing very severe impacts from the climate crisis so i think it's easy and i would count myself in this you know for many of us to look at the world around us and think oh yeah we're having you know an unseasonably warm autumn. This is very strange and XYZ kind of bad thing is happening from our position of like comparative comfort and safety. But I think, you know, the important thing is to always bear in mind just how severe impacts already are for so many people around the world. And I think that's why I start my book off there. It's just kind of a reminder of this isn't something that's happening in an imagined future. It's happening now, it has been happening. And, you know, we've already wasted quite a lot of time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Manchester University Press podcast, One Book at a Time. If you like what you've heard, please check out the MUP website, www.manchesteruniversitypress.co.uk, where you can find and order a copy of this book and many others like it. Don't forget to follow us on all major social media platforms and subscribe to our newsletter for 30% off all our books.